What if you had tools in your back pocket such that during the darkest depths of your Hashi diagnosis, you feel like there's nothing you can do, you can start to tap into these tools to build your resilience. That is what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Dr. Jill Carnahan. She is a board certified integrative holistic medicine specialist. She's also known as your functional medicine expert. And she has a book that just came out called Unexpected. And it is this beautiful journey through building resilience physically and emotionally. She's kind of known as the Sherlock Holmes of medicine. And she is really great with solving some of the medical mysteries out there. Some of the cases that are really hard to figure out and diagnose. And she utilizes lab testing, biochemical analysis, and she helps patients identify the root cause of their illness by identifying nutritional as well as metabolic imbalances that could be contributing to their symptoms. And her book is this really beautiful integration of mindset and healing techniques to build resilience as well as functional medicine tips. So check it out. I hope you love this podcast. Let's dive in. Dr. Jill Carnahan, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. Excited to have you here. Great to be here with you. Yeah. So your new book, Unexpected, is really this memoir of resilience, overcoming Crohn's, mold exposure, breast cancer, loss on really multiple different levels. I'm curious, what does resilience mean to you? Oh, great question. Um, and thank you for your kind words. It's interesting because um, there's so many books on, you know, environmental toxicity and autoimmunity and this stuff. And I really felt called to be a little bit different voice in that stories are connected tissue. And even though it's my story, my hope is that the reader sees themselves reflected because we all have a story. We all have a journey. We all have these difficulties and sufferings. And so for me, the resilience framework is how do we deal with life's inevitable uncertainties and the things that life throws at us, the illnesses, the curveballs, the loss, the loss of loved ones, the financial issues, all the stuff that life inevitably has. We somehow think that we have this level of control. I mean, we buy insurance policies. We do all these things that like make us think that we have control. And the truth is we have not a lot of control in some ways and other ways we have a lot of control, but what we do have control of is our mind, our mindset and our heart and like how we come into life and how we view and frame our circumstances. And to me, that is the core of resilience because we are going to have difficulties and we are going to have suffering. And my story isn't unique. Um, Everybody out there has their own story and their own things that they have faced or are facing the resilience piece comes in if we frame it with a a desire to find a purpose and meaning in every experience and to allow it to transform us and to become a better soul, a better human, a better person, um, and to become healthier and more vibrant. That to me is resilience. So it's really this framework on how we view the things coming at us in life. The listeners to this podcast are typically women struggling with Hashimoto's who need to keep fighting, need to keep bouncing back from setbacks, whether it be from gut problems or brain fog or anxiety or extreme fatigue. If you were to give maybe just one tool, because there's so many tools in this book about remembering to keep bouncing back and to keep maybe fighting for your own health and being your own advocate, what would it be from this book for the women with Hashimoto's? Well, my thought that just came to mind, and I always go with my intuition because that's the main the main message in the book is like, how do we go from the head, the analytical mind and how we view things to actually go into the heart space and, and use both, which is this kind of science and faith side, masculine, feminine energies. It's like using both the heart and the head. 
So the thing that just came to mind, which is very intuitive is I just saw this vision of like an outlet where we're plugged in and us as women, especially we're plugged into our family, our work, our, our, maybe our pets, our children are all these things in our life that are, are taking energy out and it's good stuff. It's wonderful stuff. It's stuff we love. We support, we like gives us joy in life, but if we're plugged in and we're not getting charged back up for ourselves, um, there's, there's an outflow of energy and, um, and we're not really bringing that back in. And so this, this thought of how do you recharge, where do you plug in and what takes energy out of you and what puts energy back in you. And so many of us are going around in life, doing what we should do, right? We're a great wife, a great mother, a great career. We have a great career. We're doing all these roles that society or our conditioning has told us, this is what you should do and should be. And we're drowning in the shoulds. We're drowning in the expectations of what a woman should be and having all, and it's funny because feminism, I mean, I understand women's rights. I totally am like that, but I think it's done a disservice because it's framed this idea that we can do and be everything to everyone. And the truth is what happens usually is we're putting out all this energy on all levels and we're not nourishing our souls. So the one takeaway is how do you nourish your soul? For me, it's like quiet time with a book or a journal or being in nature, or I don't have my sweet puppies right now. They passed away last year, but I've my time with my animals and I will in the future, I'm sure have more pets, but those times that are just refreshing for you that may not be productive or may not feel like they're useful, but they might be the most important thing you do. Maybe for, for me, it's an Epsom salt bath every night. I literally almost every single night of my life take an Epsom salt bath and that's my quiet time. It's my time to refresh and wash off literally and figuratively all the stress of the day. So whatever for you is a restorative practice, make sure that you put that, you schedule that, you put that in your life because we tend to love and give and those with autoimmune more than any other category, we're pouring out but we have to take care and nourish ourselves. So whatever gives you that energy back, making sure that you have time for that. I think so many women fit this mold with an autoimmune disease of like type A, perfectionist, people pleasing, always doing, like you mentioned. And you mentioned in the book, a HSP, a highly sensitive person. <laughs> I'm curious because I feel like as women who might be mothers, if our duty to serve and do and be there for our kids. How can we kind of break this pattern of maybe always defaulting to that or maybe going too much to that side? We need to nourish ourselves, but I think we're kind of trained to to do. Yeah. That, so two things here that come to mind. One is, um, at least for me, and I talk about this in the book, uh, growing up, I mean, I had a wonderful family, wonderful surroundings, but somehow I just personally got the idea that I was only worthy of love if I was um, producing or achieving or succeeding. And so I went on this path because I thought, oh, again, this is all subconscious. There was no conscious decision about it, but subconsciously I thought I'm going to be loved and worthy of love. If I achieve, if I succeed, if I get good grades, if I graduate valedictorian and then go into medical school. So I got on this roller coaster where I felt loved and worthy of love only if I was succeeding or achieving. Now this could go with, you know, if you're just, a, I shouldn't say just, it's the most valuable thing in the world, but if you're a mother, so forgive me for that word. If you're a mother and you're pouring into your children, um, you might also feel like my value comes from my family or how successful they are, or how my children are thriving or my husband or my partner or my, uh, you name it, right? You can pick anything and we start to find this external validation. Um, but autoimmune is about loving ourselves because at the root metaphorical cause, and I talk about this with Gabor Mate's work as well, autoimmune is attack of self. There's something in there that's either lack of worthiness, lack of love for ourselves, or feeling like even a self-loathing of certain parts of ourselves. So part of the healing with autoimmunity, especially is this really going deep, 
and saying, do I really love myself and all parts of myself, the belly, I, I always thought I didn't like it, or the, you know, whatever things about physically, mentally, emotionally, loving all those parts of ourselves, and then also nourishing those parts and knowing that we are intrinsically worthy of love, regardless of our mother role, our wife role, our partner role, our work role, whatever career things we have. And for me, I had to detach and I continually do this from the idea that my worth came from my success and achievement, because that in some ways is just an addiction. And when we say it that way, it's kind of like shocking, like, no, oh my gosh, I'm not an addict. Because I remember hearing this for the first time. And I'm like, well, I don't do drugs. I don't do alcohol, but we all have our addictions. And those are ways to deal with pain and suffering. You wrote this quote in the book and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was exactly to that point of we'll work for love. You wrote, no longer did I think successful people were superhuman species. Instead, I recognize they are regular people who have just found a socially acceptable way to deal with the suffering and pain from their past. When I had a clinic in New York, that was my first baby. It came before my kids. It came before my husband. I hate to say that now looking back, but at the time it was like, this is my baby. So true because, and again, this was my own, I share so much because I had to learn the hard way. And it was like six years ago at this health related mastermind where all these health entrepreneurs and the uh, person, Joe Polish was talking and he was talking about addiction and I was kind of tuning out because I'm like, you know, my silly self-righteous self. I'm like, oh, I'm not an addict. It doesn't reply. It doesn't apply to me. But all of a sudden he's like, every one of you in this room is an addict. And he started talking about how that success addiction or that work addiction. And I, I recognize recognized it. And again, it could be what happens with addictions is there's some that are societal, not acceptable. So for example, alcohol or drug addict, typically society frowns upon, which is sad because that's also just another way to deal with trauma or obesity or over shopping or overeating or any of these things where we like fulfill our need to you know be loved with some other thing that's not real. And for me, it was work. It was totally this like achievement treadmill. And like any addiction, what happens, you get a high, you maybe have a success, you have an achievement, you open your clinic like I did. And then um, it, it lasts for a few days. And then all of a sudden you're back to the treadmill again and you have to have another high. And what happens with the work addiction is you are literally killing yourself because you're putting in, you, you will never, never feel the true love that you desire, that your heart needs from work or from eating or from shopping or from alcohol or from drugs. Yeah. I love this book because there's functional medicine tips in here, right? Like top labs to get before you're 30. And there's also this spiritual side. And you talk about like relational toxicity. And this kind of hit me. You mentioned um, this quote that like, you take care of you and I'll take care of me. And it hit me because my husband and I have a similar saying, which now looking at it, I'm like, oh, maybe this is a false sense of independence, which yeah. is our saying is you do you. Yeah. How is your journey with your relationships change, right? Because you've gone through lots of health challenges, but also relationship challenges. Oh, I love that you're picking out these little pearls and thank you so much for sharing. Um, so that comes from, I was married almost 20 years with year 19 when I was, um, you know, going through a divorce, but just about 20 years to a wonderful man. We're now wonderful friends. What happened though, is we were both, uh, we had childhood trauma that we never dealt with and patterns of relating and our pattern of relating. If you've ever uh, read Stan Tatkin's work on pack therapy, it's all about whether we're in fight or flight or freeze or how we trauma relate to our partners. And it also relates to there's a, a wave, which is kind of like come and go in and out. And we're kind of needy and then we pull back and needy. And then there's the island. The island's like, I'm fine by myself. I can take care of myself. You take care of yourself. So that's obviously where we were. We were two islands. And the, the difficulty with that is 
if you never really let down your mask and say, I have a need, can you help me with this need? So what it is, is the trauma as a child, in some way you were shaped to feel like your needs didn't matter or that you didn't have a voice. Those were patterns that I had. And again, my family was wonderful. So this is all my internal work. I'm not putting any blame because I really had loving parents, wonderful siblings. There's no, there was no awful abuse there. It's just these patterns of thinking that happen in our childhood that we start to take into our adulthood that no longer serve us. And this pattern of thinking is that I don't matter. My needs don't matter. I don't have a voice. So then you take that into an adult relationship. And especially often we mirror traumas. So we pick a partner that kind of can mirror or, or reinforce our trauma, but also if we're healthy, can bring that to the surface so we can deal with it. So I picked a husband. I met him at 19, married at 21. He had three children. So I took on an immediate family of stepchildren. And the pattern that we had was the superficial life is fun. Life is an adventure. We support one another. We have so much fun and you do your thing. And I do my thing, right? So you travel, if you're gone six weeks, no problem. I'm fine. You know, no problem. But that reflected the fact that I don't have needs. I don't need you because I can take care of myself. And that pattern comes from a trauma thinking of no one's going to take care of me. My needs don't matter. I must take care of myself. When I was like five years old, I remember thinking, you know what? This life is hard. And if there's ever, you know, difficulties, I'm the only one I can count on, which is partially true. But in a true, intimate, healthy relationship, you each have needs and you tell the other person, I need this from you today. You don't, you can decide whether you can provide it or not. That's your choice, but I have a need and it's okay to express that. Well, we didn't learn that. So what happened is all of a sudden when life got really, really difficult, right around my 40th birthday, we ended in divorce. And what's beautiful is that shook us both to the core and we both in our own way did some deep, deep work. And literally now we are dear friends. We produced a movie together. We're both in other relationships, but we have nothing but love. And so it actually, we both talk about this now um, in the fact of how it, that divorce, that shattering of what we thought was reality caused us to go to these deep issues and do the work around it and come back as much, much healthier people. I feel like if maybe the work isn't done, the pattern will come up right, again. Right. Repeat itself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I want to pivot just to more of a f- functional medicine approach, even though dealing with yeah. the, yes. these other things is still a holistic approach. But in the book, you mentioned that people can experience a total toxic load. And for women with Hashimoto's who might be seeing a conventional provider or traditional provider, that provider might not talk about other toxic burden that might be contributing to their autoimmune condition. Can you share maybe a couple things that you see often in your practice that would be considered an environmental or maybe infectious trigger or stressor? Yeah, gosh, I love this because it's so relevant to Hashimoto's and really any autoimmune disease. Um, In functional medicine, I think of it fairly simply as toxic load with infectious burden. And these two things will interplay and create inflammation and autoimmune disease and cancer and all these things that we see epidemic. And what happens is that toxic load tends to weaken our natural immunity. And so two things then happen on this other side is old infections like Epstein-Barr, which has been shown to cause thyroiditis in some cases, or CMV or HSV or Lyme disease or other infections that were dormant and not really bothering the person start to pop up because that weakened system allows them. So that's how the environmental toxic load can actually damage tissues, but also trigger old infections to reactivate. And those two things together can create autoimmune disease and especially Hashimoto's. 
Um, case in point, I grew up on a farm and part of my story is at 25, I had developed breast cancer. And of course that's very young. And even to this day, although there's more young women experiencing it is still at that time, I was the youngest diagnosed all that to say breast cancer is an endocrine cancer that is revolved around toxicity. And I really had to learn after that cancer, what were the factors? So the beauty products, phthalates and parabens, the chemicals on the farm, organophosphates and glyphosate and um, pesticides and heavy metals. And all of these things came together in my um, toxic load to create that bucket was overflowing with water and started to develop symptoms of disease. My sister uh, at 28, which uh, she's seven years younger than me. So it was a few years after my breast cancer developed thyroid cancer and also Hashimoto's. So it's very relevant to the thyroid. And these are both endocrine uh, organs and they're both, and I actually have Hashimoto's as well. So <laughs> controlled that in my mother, so mother and uh, myself and my sister, all Hashimoto's. And I think a part of it for us was our toxic load buckets to the capacity to detox was a little smaller genetically. And then we all grew up in the same environment on the farm with chemicals and pesticides. And again, bath and beauty products, cleaning products. We didn't know any better in those seventies and eighties. And those things raised the level of the water in the bucket and created illness, which is typically autoimmunity, cancer, and sometimes neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS. So when that happens, then the toxic load idea is you think about what's in my bucket and for a patient or a practitioner, the beautiful thing is it can be overwhelming to think about toxic load because there's thousands of new chemicals being released into the environment every year. And we're like, what's in the bucket? I don't even know. <laughs> but the great thing is the general principles of detoxification will work for most of the toxins. So you don't have to know as a practitioner or as a patient, every last toxin or every last drop of water in that bucket. All you need to do is get in the sauna, do some Epsom salt baths, do some lymphatic drainage processes, take glutathione or use glutathione precursors, use binders if needed. And you do these things to decrease toxic load. And the more important thing is decreasing the exposure to begin with. So I always say clean air, clean water, clean food, because this is such a core. And when you think about toxic load, it can be completely overwhelming. You're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? All my bath and body products are dirty and they're full of stuff. It is overwhelming because you have to really change this. It costs money. It takes time. But the idea, if you can think about breathing clean air, making sure you have air filtration, your furnace filter is good. You change it frequently. You have standalone filters in your bedroom if necessary. Clean water, making sure you're drinking out, not out of plastic water bottles. Your house has either a fridge filter or a reverse osmosis filter and clean food and making sure you're getting local organic whenever possible, focusing on the dirty dozen, which are the top 12 most pesticide sprayed food. So you can start with basics and get a pretty big margin back in your bucket. I love that simplification because when you have an autoimmune condition and then you start to learn about all the toxins, like especially mold, molds everywhere, the exposure can be really contracting and really almost create like a little bit of OCD or PTSD. And it's hard to move through the world when you're in that state. Absolutely. What I realized years ago, my my colleague, Bob Roundtree, would always talk about environmental toxicity, just a great lecture. We call him King Bob. And he would, he'd make it funny, but I always remember leaving those and be like, oh, life is so toxic. What do we do? Like it's depressing. Yeah. So if we can kind of take back that control and say, don't, you don't have to remember it. You don't have to know every last water drop in that bucket. You don't have to be perfect. <laughs> All you have to do is just day to day, clean air, clean water, clean food, start there and then do the next thing, and then do the next thing. I'd love to touch on mold because that was a big part of your journey. Also a big part of my journey. There's this feeling that mold is everywhere. Yes, we want to minimize our exposure. 
Sometimes you see people talking, we moved and we threw everything out of the house, which feels a little extreme, right, right. but I wonder if there's a way to strengthen our inner terrain. Maybe it's working on gut health, strengthening our microbiome so that when we do get exposed, because it almost feels inevitable, is there a way to strengthen our inner terrain so that we're not just totally debilitated from that exposure? Yeah. Once again, great question and insight um, in that, Emily, because I think that um, this is the core mold is toxic and traumatic <laughs> for all of us who've experienced it. And there is literally, I talk about in the book, as I researched, I was shocked to find there's studies that show that chemical inhalation through the nose, through the cribriform plate, actually just, even if our mind is set and we're fine and we're like, it's going to be okay. The chemical exposure triggers a limbic response. There's literally Olympic activation, which is like our fight or flight. Um, when we inhale chemicals and mold. So that's scary, right? But the other part about that is when we start to reframe that and know that we're going to be okay and do the work around old trauma patterns, that limbic system activation is part of the healing from mold. And we need to address that through, you can listen to binaural beats. You can go do cranial sacral therapy. You can do neuro-linguistic programming. You can do any sort of thing around allowing your body to feel safe. And when you start to do the work around that, um, and then you detox, you lower the load in the bucket and the real practical things there would be things that support production of glutathione. You can do liposomal or IV glutathione, but you can also do NAC, vitamin C, selenium, ALA, N-acetylcysteine. There's all these things that create more glutathione and liver support like milk thistle. And then binders are incredibly helpful because you're pulling out toxins with an electrostatic charge, things like clay or charcoal or glycomannans or cholestyramine or wellcol. And you can use those things in a detox to decrease your toxic load and become more resilient. But the bottom line in your question is, can we become resilient so that mold doesn't really affect us? Two answers. One thing is those who are really sensitive to mold are probably always going to be somewhat sensitive. I'm one of those. I can still walk into a hotel room and be like, oh, there's mold here. But the second part of that is it doesn't freak me out. It doesn't scare me. I'm like, okay, you know, either get a new hotel room or take some charcoal or do an Epsom salt bath. And what I want to empower your listeners to is you can learn, first of all, detox, get your load down, and then you can know that you are resilient and you can get these exposures on little bits and you're going to be okay. And what you want to do is have your like mold pack, whatever your thing is, maybe it's glutathione and charcoal. And I always take those things traveling because if I do get a hit in a hotel, I know very quickly how I can reverse that toxicity and get back to normal within 12 hours or 24 hours. And that's the key to resilience because there's going to be mold. There's going to be exposures, but we have to know for our own bodies, what does it take for us to kind of reverse those symptoms? And that can be a little bit of trial and error. Do you think people who are living in water damage, maybe mold, and they don't have the financial means to remediate or to move? Cause that's a common thing. And I think the big message is like, oh, you got to move. And it's like, well, if I don't have the funds to move, do you think right. someone can get to a certain place? And obviously every person is different. Some are more sensitive like myself and yourself yeah. Yeah. to start to heal. Maybe it's like decreasing the toxic burden, getting outside, even if they're still living in it. So it's a great question because the number one rule with mold is get out of exposure, but that doesn't have to be perfect. And I love that you say this because I see this all the time where patients have to make choices. They either have six months, they can't move until that time, or they have wait till remediation because it's so expensive or they have to figure things out. So a couple of pearls, if you can't move or you're stuck or your landlord won't fix the problem or finances are short, I will still say that a super high level of say like stachybotrys or catomium, some of the really black toxic molds, you are not going to get 
like, well, if you have a massive level in the place you're living, no matter what, it's just, it's almost impossible, but there's still hope. So what you want to do is dilution is the solution to pollution. So at the very least, open your windows, get some airflow. And what can help a lot and, and save you time and money in the long run is if you are stuck or you can't move or you can't do anything, if you fog with an oil-based fogger, there's all kinds of botanical options. You bring that particulate down to the surfaces and then you can clean. And every single time that's for patients and myself included, that allows the burden of the mycotoxins and the particulate in the air to be lower. So many times, I would say most times people feel a lot better and that can buy you time. So that can buy you time for three months or six months. And if you had to fog every three or six months to kind of get by, someone once said this analogy and I loved it. The factory is like the mold behind the wall, right? So you maybe haven't dealt with a factory, but that factory is producing smoke. And those are the mycotoxins that are going through the wall and making you feel foggy and dense and trouble with memory and trouble with sleep and anxiety and all these other things that happen or skin issues or gut issues or whatever. So that smoke is actually coming through the wall from the factory of the mold. So say you're in this house and you can't fix the factory, you can't tear that down and fix it. You can still clean up the smoke and you'll feel better. And again, it's not your factory still there. So if you, if you go another six months, it's going to come back out. The smoke's going to come, but it's kind of nice to know that you can temporarily fix that really quick story. That's interesting. I think after we had the fires here about a year and a half ago, all that smoke damage, it was in my town of Louisville and Superior, of course, where we, where we were at. And it was really bad damage. And some of the um, off-gassing from the fires in patients' labs and after exposure looked just like mold. So it was super, super toxic. And we got an estimate that was like, I don't know, $40,000 to clean up the office, crazy expensive. And I thought, you know what? This is the same kind of particulate, like the smoke from mold from a factory. I bet we can fog and clean ourselves. And guess what? We fogged ourselves, my staff and I, we cleaned and had a professional cleaner and it was great. Like we did it ourselves for a fraction of the cost. And I realized any sort of particulate from smoke damage, from mold, you can get to a better spot if you fog and clean. It buys you time at least. And then I love what you said earlier too, because the other thing is, do I have to throw everything out? The answer is no. Now, yes, there are some situations that are so, so bad and toxic that it's worth throwing out some books and buying new ones. But most of the time you can clean things. If you have a question about porous materials like books and paper, put them in a plastic bin, seal that bin, put it in your garage. Don't worry about it but that way you don't have to deal with it. And then six months or 12 months later, go open that box, see how you feel. I promise you, if it's a problem, you're going to know pretty quickly. You'll get a headache. You'll be like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. You're going to know. And that's a great way to do it. So you don't have to throw everything out. I love that analogy, first of all. And secondly, I love that message because I think it gives hope. When you work with patients and obviously there's a personalized approach, let's say you're seeing someone with Hashimoto's. Is there a hierarchy in terms of what to treat first? Because I think sometimes new practitioners will just see a patient and they'll treat everything at once. And the next thing you know, the patient's overwhelmed, they're feeling terrible versus a great practitioner will really create kind of a game plan or hierarchy of what to treat first. And then we're going to treat this and then we're going to work on this. So I know it's personalized, but I'm curious of your approach. If you saw someone came to you with Hashimoto's. Yes. So absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And I actually practice very, like you said, very personalized. So I've always been like, I don't have a protocol. Yeah. I mean, I have ideas in my head of like frameworks, but I'm um, every person I'm like, okay, let's talk about this, but there is still an, an order of operations. So what I would do is um, we know with autoimmune, I'm sure you've talked about this before in your podcast, there's a triad, there's a genetics that we may, may or may not be able to change. Although epigenetic expression can be changed by emotions and diet and nutrition. So it's not hopeless. If you have high risk genes, number two is environmental inputs. We 
we just got done talking about toxic exposure and things like um, toxins, mold, um, metals, parabens, phthalates, those would be environmental inputs. The third thing is gut immune interface. So it's kind of like Vegas, everything happens in Vegas and you know everything happens in the gut and that's where things start um, the process of autoimmunity. So I always look at gut immune interface first. And the reason for this is because something like gluten in your diet, if you have a high risk genetic profile could be so simple as a way to decrease antibodies or even completely reverse Hashimoto's. So even though I don't think diet is always curative, I think in the early days of functional medicine, we thought, oh, put everyone on an elimination diet, which is off the top seven corn and soy and gluten and dairy and egg, sugar, alcohol, which is a lot, but often people got better. But I've realized now in this toxic world with infectious burden, the elimination diet is a great start for some people, but it does not cure everybody. But even so, I would always start because if gluten's an issue, that's an easy low-lying fruit that nowadays it's pretty easy to implement a gluten-free diet. So with that triad, we have genetics. We can't really change a lot. We don't start there. Um, we have environmental inputs, the external like toxins and things. And gluten is one of those. That's an easy changeable thing. Um, if there is other toxic exposures, those are other ones. And then this gut immune interface. But actually where we start, I always start with the gut. Start with making sure that there's no dysbiosis or abnormal overgrowth of fungus or bacteria in the small bowel or in the large bowel, treating that, any parasites. So fixing that gut first, because gut permeability is what leads to the things that are in our gut, those antigens, those gluten molecules, the corn molecules, whatever you might be sensitive to crossing over into the bloodstream and creating an immune response. And that's kind of an easy way to start. So diet and gut first. Second, I'll check, do you have mass cell activation? Do you have toxic exposures like mold or other things? Um, do you have other infections? And those order of operations, mass cell activation leads to excessive inflammatory response. And not all people with Hashimoto's have that, but there's a subset that do. And you have to address that first because this is an overactive immune system that will not tolerate supplements or any changes very well. So addressing that mast cell first, if that's present, and then next would be environmental toxins, especially mold before infections, because those toxins are going to weaken immune system. And sometimes you get rid of the toxic load and their immune system comes back online and you don't really need to be aggressive at treating Epstein-Barr or Lyme or the infections. So that's kind of the order, gut, mast cell, mold or environmental toxins, and then finally infections. Can you address mast cell activation syndrome without kind of addressing maybe what the cause of it is? Like, let's say someone's exposed to mold and they're having mast cell activation symptoms. Can you, can you treat that without just, you know, that's a great question. Cause truly like mold is probably the number one trigger of mass activation. Yeah. Although post COVID COVID has been a big trigger too, um, for people long-term or short-term, even a few months after if mold triggered, and then you get out of the exposure and you're doing well, then yes, you can. If you're ongoing, getting exposed, it's going to be hard. And in fact, that's a clue. If you have done all the right things with your functional practitioner, or you've even online researched and done a lot of stuff yourself and you're stuck, and you're like, what is going on? I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm sleeping. I'm eating right. I changed my diet. I'm taking some basic supplements and I'm still really toxic or I don't feel well, or my Hashi's is antibodies higher than ever. Often that's a clue that there's something in the environment that's still triggering you. And mold is typically the biggest thing that I find when people feel stuck. I just said people, two people yesterday, where we've gone through all the stuff, all the right stuff, and they're not getting better. And as I looked at their labs and looked at everything that we saw from the data point, I was like, oh, you still have mold. <laughs> so we had to address that next. Do you have go-to testing for someone picking up mold in their own body? Yeah. So this is always the million dollar question. What one test can I get for mold? Right. right. So I want to frame it with, there's no one test, but I want to say first the free things because it doesn't have to cost money, a good history, which you can obviously, if you're a 
practitioner, you can ask the right questions, but if you're a patient, do a timeline, write down, when did you last feel well? And maybe it was 2019. And then we moved in 2020 to a new home and then our washer and dryer, you know, flooded or whatever it is. But in a timeline, you can often see a trajectory of when you last felt well, and then what changed in the meantime to where you are today. Because if you can look back as yourself, you can be like, oh, we moved and yeah, my whole family has issues. And then it might be your environment or, you know, when maybe I got really sick with COVID and every since I've not been the same and it might be your immune system. So you can make your own timeline. That's free. You can do visual contrast testing online, or if you're office like myself, we do it in the office, visual contrast testing checks, visual acuity of the retina. And uh, you can often see biotoxin exposure. It was first developed in the 1940s in the armed services when they were getting out in the field and maybe getting exposed to chemicals and things. And they would be able to test this and see if they had a high toxic exposure. And again, those two things are free. So you can kind of just screen. Then we can go to the blood work. Blood work, some of those um, Shoemaker labs, which are Sears labs are still valuable. They do not diagnose, but TGF-beta, MMP9, VEGF, ADH osmolality, I still use because if all four or five of those are high and abnormal, there's a likelihood that toxic exposure is involved. And then the one I think you were kind of getting at is urinary mycotoxins. This is a pretty easy test. There's three or four companies that do it. Vibrant labs, real-time labs, um, Great Plains labs, all good. And what this does is it measures your body's excretion of mycotoxins, which is like the smoke analogy of the factory. It's what this factory of the mold is producing that you might get exposed to in your tissues or when you breathe in to your lungs. But the key there is it's measuring excretion. So say someone got found mold, detox from mold, um, got rid of the problem, but they're still in the detox process. They may show as they're excreting mold because that's what the body's supposed to do. But you kind of want to, in the beginning, you can test and say, have you been recently exposed to mold? And it's likely if it's really high, a fairly recent exposure versus like 10 or 12 years ago. Um, but there's no for sure timeline on that. And again, say you start someone on detox and you do another test for excretion, it could go up if you're doing your job right, because you're trying to get those out of the body. And then sometimes there's certain strains that are on the higher end, like I've noticed ochratoxin A, I'm like, why is that like always in the red for so many people? <laughs> yeah, so ochratoxin is the one usually for aspergillus penicillin. And if I think about like um, history of mold and how they kind of come about, uh, initial water damage will start to grow aspergillus penicillin species. And those are not good and they can cause autoimmune and issues. But in my mind, they're less toxic than the really toxic black molds like Atomium and Stachy, which typically don't come until two or three weeks after water damage. So they are a little bit later. So there is a little bit of a timeline of mold. And that ochratoxin is much more common with early and common molds, whereas like trichosethenes, which are the typical toxins from the black mold, those are a little bit more serious. Ochratoxin also could, aflo and ochratoxin could come from foods, although typically these are actually from environmental exposures, whereas trichosethenes from black toxic molds are rarely from foods. So if you start to see those, you're like, okay, this is much more likely an environmental exposure. Do you ever use um, an antibody test to pick up Mycotoxins. Yes, yeah, so I think it's my mycotoxins lab or something like that. Yeah, my and myco lab. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It should show recent exposure and it's actually measuring your immune response to mold. So it's one more piece of data. And I feel still feel like the uh, jury's out on which one is actually more valid in real time, but it does have validity. I want to go back to your childhood for the last question. You mentioned that I think it was 14 years old, you became vegetarian. And in the book, you mentioned that it probably led to some health issues, right? At that age. Um, inside my program, Thyroid Strong, we talk a lot about protein for muscle maintenance, for energy. Can you share that story from when you were a kid? 
Yeah. So um, looking back, this is what's important. Um, I didn't really like meat. And if I had had a good practitioner at the time, which of course at 14, I wasn't seeing a functional medicine doctor. So there was no, it was just my own intuition. But if I look back, there was some things probably happening. First of all, I had celiac disease and it was silent. I didn't know it until I was after my cancer diagnosis at 20, 26 or 27. So I was probably starting to react to gluten and didn't know it. And that, that reaction obviously didn't affect meat, but what it did is probably create some malabsorption. I later found I had a severe zinc and B12 deficiency. Zinc deficiency will, will present with lack of taste for meat. So you don't like meat. If you have a zinc deficiency, you're like, Oh, really can't stand that stuff. And then I also had hypochlorhydria pretty severe where I wasn't producing enough stomach acid. So of course, any big source of animal protein in my stomach would feel heavy and not well. So those are the precursors that again, I didn't know any of this at 14. I just knew meat doesn't feel very good to me. Had I known that I would have probably fixed the problem, but what I did instead was the only thing I had heard of, you know, somewhere, oh, why don't I try being vegetarian? And then what happened was I gravitated towards carbs. So I joke, I was a carbitarian. And at that time, again, I had no clue. I grew up on a farm with, you know, kind of steak and potatoes kind of background. So no one in my family had ever been a vegetarian. No one knew how to guide me. So I was on my own at 14. And what I ended up doing is much more pasta and bread and carbs and processed soy and processed replacements for meat, which are really very not good at all. They're toxic and they're not quality proteins at all. Had I known better, I still needed that protein. And what happened then is I went down a a route and I didn't know the B12 deficiency probably got a lot worse on that kind of a diet and the malabsorption. um, Again, those were easier to digest foods, but looking back because it was so heavy in carbs and processed soy, I I always joke, it almost killed me. Um, But had I known the reasons behind that, like the hypochlorhydria, the lack of zinc, I probably could have developed a more healthy diet. And to this day, I still don't eat bread meat. I don't like it. It's too heavy, but I do feel like for me, I desperately need quality proteins like fish and chicken. And I probably would not do well without those um, just because of my history. Jill, thank you so much. Your book's awesome. It's funny. It's an easy read. Like I was like, oh, like I can't put this down. Um, Everyone should pick it up unexpected. And where can people find you? Thank you. Yeah. My website is my name. So jillcarnahan.com. There is loads and decades of free articles, resources, podcasts, all at jillcarnahan.com. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth and knowledge. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.